Welcome to the Blue Collar Scholar. I am your host, Will Wrights. I load freight with a forklift. I have been a bus driver and a substitute teacher, and I am a history graduate student. I am an ordained pastor, and I hope to become a history professor. In this podcast, we will explore history, theology, pop culture, current events, and perhaps a few other topics along the way. The Blue Collar Scholar is written, recorded, and edited by Will Wrights. The opening and closing music is Lo-Fi Summer Background by Vladislav Kurnikov from Pixabay. The purpose of this podcast is to educate. Use and distribution of this podcast can only be done by the express written permission of the content creator of this podcast. However, if you enjoyed this episode, I would appreciate it if you liked and subscribed to Blue Collar Scholar in Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast distributor. Writing a review, leaving a five-star rating, and sharing links in your social media platform is also much appreciated. Thank you for joining us. Okay, so last week we got done with our studies of the text, and we're going to come back to the text, especially next week when we talk about Jesus, the apostles, and then Paul, the biographies. So we'll obviously be touching on the text then, but but as far as studying the text of the New Testament, we're done. So today we're going to talk about the early church fathers' writings, and then on Thursday we're going to talk about the Gnostic writings, as kind of other things that could have been put in the New Testament but weren't. And then next week, the biographies. And then after that, I believe I've set aside some time to do some theologies. And actually, by that time, we're around Thanksgiving, early December. So this semester is going by you know, pretty quick. So tonight we're going to talk about the early church fathers. So what do we know about these people? Well, as a group, the church fathers are identified by the fact that they did not know Jesus, with maybe a couple of exceptions. Polycarp Ignatius might have been old enough to have seen Jesus at some point, but that's unlikely. So these men did not know Jesus. All of the church fathers would be part of the second or third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh generation of the church. So, you know, down the line. And next is, even by their own admission, what they're writing is not to be considered scripture. Clement, for instance, I looked for the quote today, I couldn't find it, so I think it's more one of those things where if you read the whole first Clement, you get the sense that he is appealing to the writings of the apostles, that he has a sense that his writings are secondary and derivative. That's the word I'm looking for. So you get the sense that Clement thinks of his own work as derivative from the Apostles' writings, which doesn't seem to line up with anything else you see in the New Testament, with maybe the exception of Hebrews. Although Hebrews is such original thought compared to the rest of the New Testament that it it kind of has its own place. And you kind of get a sense of that with, there's none of the early church fathers' writings, do, are they coming out and saying, I am writing this here with the authority of the Holy Spirit, and you need to be treating this letter as Holy Scripture. You don't see any of that. With maybe the exception of the Didache. I'm not sure I'm pronouncing that right. But uh, it was considered Scripture by some because it purported to be 
the teachings of the Twelve Apostles. And I will come back to that in a bit. You also have some cases where some people had First Clement listed as part of the New Testament because he wrote so early. He is one of the earliest of the church fathers, especially one of the earliest of the church writers. And so, Canon 85, I don't really know anything about it, I just know it's a co- one of the earliest collections of New Testament writings, has First Clement thrown in there. And also, the Muslim scholar and the first modern historian, Ibn Khaldun, he considered First Clement to be part of the New Testament. Other than that, is there a clear definition on what makes a, a church father? Unfortunately, there isn't. And one of the things that always gets me is there's people like Timothy, Silas, Mark, and Luke who kind of find themselves in a middle ground where they don't have either term. They're not considered an apostle, nor are they considered early church fathers. Mark and Luke, you'll often hear them referred to as evangelists because they write a gospel. So evangelism, good news, gospel's good news. So they are a bringer of the good news, therefore they are evangelists. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John sometimes are referred to as evangelists. Matthew and John are also apostles. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are often considered evangelists. Matthew and John are also considered apostles, which is kind of considered a greater office. And then Timothy and Silas are weird because both of them have their names at the front of books of the Bible. They've, each of them are listed as authors with uh, a couple of Paul's works, and then Silas is even listed as a co-author of First Peter. And so they are authors of Scripture, technically, so they wouldn't count as that church father category because part of the definition of an early church father is that their writings aren't to be considered Scripture. So, you know, what term does Timothy and Silas have? Neat fellows, I suppose. Disciples of Paul. And so you also see groups of people who are not considered church fathers for obvious reasons. And the best examples would be Marcion and Arius. That's because church history generally considers these people to be out-and-out heretics. So Marcion was a... I'm not sure I've got the time on this right, but I'm thinking it's 2nd century, though his earliest ministry, for lack of a better word, might have been in the late 1st century, very late 1st century. Marcion taught that there was an epic dualism between the God of the Old Testament, who was a grouchy, get-off-my-lawn type God, and the happy, joyous, merciful God of the New Testament, who sent Jesus. And so it's an epic battle between the two gods, which obviously, at this point, you should be saying to yourself, no, that's, that's not supported by Scripture. Marcion thought it was. He is even the first person to come up with a quote-unquote canon of the New Testament. Canon is just another canon with one end in the middle, not two. A canon with two ends in the middle, that shoots cannonballs. But canon with one end in the middle is simply an authoritative list. So he's the first one to come up with a canon of the New Testament. He only had Luke and then the writings of Paul, except for uh, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus, and I think Philemon. Didn't make the cut either. I don't know how Marcion thought Paul's writings led to that conclusion, because they don't. And then you have Arius. He was a heretic who believed that the sun was a created being. Not the sun, the burning ball of gas in the sky, but God the sun, Jesus Christ. He believed that Jesus should be thought of as more than man, but less than God. Kind of a in-the-middle state. And Arius' teachings were for 
centuries, the if not the dominant teaching in Christendom, it was a very strong part of Christendom. And over time, it started to fall out because it it doesn't have as strong of scriptural support as basic orthodoxy, and that is Trinitarian orthodoxy, that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are one God, three persons, that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are not created beings, but each of them, as a collected trinity, as a collective trinity, is the singular creator. Interestingly enough, Arianism survived long enough for not Genghis Khan himself, but a bunch of Genghis Khan's empire was full of Aryan Christians. And during the Crusade era, I think the late Crusade era, some European Christians saw that as a possible opportunity to ally themselves with the Mongol hordes against Muslims. They decided they could set aside the fact that most of our church history would consider Arianism heresy, but, you know, it's Christian heresy, so come on board. Oh, no, no. Yeah, they're not... Con- uh, the When you talk about white supremacists and Nazis who use the term Aryan, they're using the term with Aryan with a Y. Oh, okay. And that is a misunderstanding, either willful or honest misunderstanding of the Aryan people group who were from India, of all places. And it was part of the early, very early, kind of late prehistoric movement of peoples across... Uh, Eastern, well, actually, all the way from Spain. So across Europe and through the Middle East and across the mountains of the Caucasus Mountains, the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea, the foothills of the Himalayas and into India, and all the way down to Sri Lanka. All of those, not all of them, there are some languages that are separate, but 90% of the people groups that populate that area speak languages that descend from an ancient language called Indo-European. And the Aryans were one of those groups. And early white supremacists of... I'm, I'm sure it predates Nazism, but the first I was aware of it was Nazism interpreted the Aryans as an ancient, blonde-headed, white, glorious, European, you know, super race, which is ridiculous. If anything, the Aryans would probably more resemble modern-day Indian Indians from India than they would white people. The Aryan that we use when we're talking about Arianism doesn't have a Y in it. And that is based on the heretic Arius, A-R-I-U-S. And Arius, his influence was strong enough that that was one of the major reasons why the Council of Nicaea was called by Constantine, the emperor. And the Council of Nicaea will get a lot of play on like the History Channel, and other, you know, I don't know, discovery. You'll, you'll hear a lot of people talk about the Council of Nicaea as, as almost the point where everything went wrong. And that's totally unfair. The Council of Nicaea was designed to, to hash out some things like the dating of Easter and some other things. The, a lot of people believe that the Council of Nicaea is firmly established, established the 27-book canon that we have today. There's actually not enough evidence to declare that that is what happened, but it does seem to be that the Council of Nicaea, as well as the councils that surrounded it, there were some councils before Nicaea, some councils after, that at a certain point it was just agreed that these 27 books are the canon of the New Testament. 
And really, by the time you get to those councils, it was less a bunch of church fathers arguing with each other and coming to fist and fist fights over it. You know, some people uh, wanting to kick out Hebrews and other people wanting to add First Clement. It was really more like a bunch of art historians meeting at a museum and trying to decide whether a Picasso should belong in an art textbook. And they all get together and say, this is pretty good, isn't it? Yeah, it's pretty good. So we're going to add it, right? Yeah, let's add it. So as the church fathers started to discussing the canon, there was only really a few books that were under discussion. Second Peter and Jude, because both of them use First Enoch. We've talked about this. Uh, Hebrews, because nobody was quite sure who wrote it. Revelation, because it's weird. And for the most part, that was, that was about it. There really wasn't a whole lot of a debate. There were some other books that possibly could have been added, but the only ones that were really under serious consideration were First Clement, because it was so early, and The Shepherd of Hermas, because it's so beautiful. But for the most part, all the Gnostic Gospels, you see a lot of times you'll hear people on the History Channel trying to champion like the Gospel of Thomas or some other Gnostic stuff. None of that was ever under any serious consideration for addition to the New Testament because it's just so weird. So I got off on a tangent there. Actually, I need to complete the tangent. So another big part of the Council of Nicaea was that it was basically the place where it was decided that Arianism would be a heresy, and it established that Christ was uncreated creator. And at one point during the Council of Nicaea, this is another one of those things that might be legend, like the peeling of the rocks off of the temple for the gold, but St. Nicholas, yes, the St. Nicholas, the one that comes down your chimney and gives you presents on Christmas. St. Nicholas at the council got so fed up with Arius that he marched down to the front and punched him right in the face. So sometimes on Facebook you'll see a picture of Santa Claus, or usually what I'll see is I'll see one of the old icons of the actual St. Nicholas, the dark-skinned early Christian saint from Turkey. And it'll say... I've come to chew gum and punch heretics and I'm all out of gum, that kind of thing. Or more, if, if it's a picture of Santa Claus, it'll say, I'm, I'm here to give presents and punch heretics, but I'm all out of presents, that kind of stuff. So that happened, and it might be legend, but until I know otherwise, I'm going to say that that happened at the Council of Nicaea. So people like Marcion and Arius are almost always left out of early church father Lists. The exception being the Jehovah's Witnesses can, would consider Arius one of their seven great church fathers. If anything, they would consider him the greatest of the church fathers. Uh, for obvious reasons, because his teaching of the that Christ is a created being lines up perfectly with Jehovah's Witness teachings. But then you have some people who are not quite as her- heretical. People like Origen and Tertullian. And actually both Origen and Tertullian were known for writing against heresies. In fact, one of Tertullian's writings is known as Against Heresies. That's the title of it. Why are they often not considered church fathers? In fact, I don't believe... I know Tertullian isn't. I don't believe either of them have been sainted by the Roman Catholic Church. Well, Tertullian was a mostly Orthodox, North African... I'm going to go ahead and call him a church father, even though he often is left off lists. He was a North African church father most likely a man of color. He was mostly orthodox, but he had a a couple of issues. He held to very strict personal holiness standards. Almost what we would say today is legalism. 
for instance, churches that teach that you should never drink alcohol. Instead of you shouldn't get drunk, they'll say no alcohol whatsoever. Or they'll say, instead of using wisdom about which kind of movies you watch, they'll just say no PG-13, no R-rated movies. It's just a, a form of legalism. Well, in Tertullian's case, his uh, strict personal holiness standards led him, led him to oppose remarriage for widows and widowers. You know, the, the old man of one wife line from Paul. And that led him, or his strict personal holiness standards led him to become a Montanist. And I don't know much about the Montanists, but I do know that Augustine, probably the greatest of all church fathers, uh, opposed the Montanists, and that the about the best thing we can say about, or about the most accurate thing we can say about the Montanists were that they were early charismatics. They believed that prophecy and personal revelations from the Holy Spirit continued beyond the days of the New Testament, which is very similar to what the Assemblies of God or the Pentecostals believe today. In Origen's case, he was a little more weird. Origen was a great philosopher. And in some ways, he's a great theologian and an, an apologist. He fought against heresies. But he also had a couple of interesting thoughts. He believed in the pre-existence of the soul. So, for instance, I, my understanding of Christian orthodoxy is that I began at a certain point. So roughly nine months before August 6, 1981, I began. And I did not exist before then. So at a certain point, Tom Wrights and Robin Wrights, as a married couple, got together and conceived a child. And at the point of conception, I began to exist. I did not exist beforehand. But I was formed in, in the womb by the hands of God, and that includes the formation of my soul. Origen would disagree. He believed that we all pre-exist, that the soul is an eternal being, which he's wrong about that, I think, from at least from a Christian orthodoxy standard, but he was getting those ideas, if I understand Origen correctly, from, from his understanding of Greek philosophy combined with Christian orthodoxy. He also believed in universal salvation. So there are certain more liberal Christians today who are actually believe that Origen's due for a revival. Christians who believe that all people will be saved by the blood of Christ. And so Marcion and Arius are left out for obvious reasons, and then even good examples of church fathers like Origen and Tertullian are often left out. And also there doesn't seem to be a time limit on church fathers. You don't ever hear like John Paul II or uh, Mother Teresa referred to as, as church fathers. But you'll often hear like St. Thomas Aquinas referred to as a church father, but Thomas, his ministry and his, his academic work was in the 1200s. That's like 1,100 years after Christ. That's, that's a long period of time. That's, a thou, that's over 1,000 years. Just to, to put it in perspective, what was happening 1,000 years ago from our perspective? Well, that's actually 300 years before Thomas Aquinas. And so you're talking most of church history then would fall under the church father's time frame. Now's the point where I need to be very honest about uh, a big weakness amongst Protestants. And that is that we Protestants have a bad habit of ignoring the church fathers. We seem to go from the New Testament to Luther and everything between that is just kind of unimportant. Or at best, it's church history. Read it when you have time. And, and even then, eh, 
Don't worry about it. So once John finishes writing John or Revelation, whichever one comes last, until Martin Luther nails his 95 theses to the Wittenberg door, that, that everything between that is just kind of a gray mist that we don't need to worry about. It's almost like John got done writing and then Martin Luther started nailing to the door. With the possible exception of Augustine, also known as Augustine. But I like to say St. Augustine is a city in Florida. St. Augustine was a early church father from Hippo. Augustine often receives a lot of attention, especially in Reformed circles. So the Reformed, there, there are Reformed Baptists and, and whatnot, but probably the most prominent Reformed denomination would be Presbyterian. And the Reformed type people tend to really like Augustine. Other than that, most of the, the time between the New Testament to the Reformation is kind of ignored. And this is the downside of sola scriptura. Sola scriptura is a Latin phrase which means by scripture alone. And it is part of the five solas. So the Protestant Reformation as kind of their battle cry, I don't know if that's appropriate, even though there was battles. Ulrich Zwingli, for instance, one of the three great early reformers, was actually killed in battle. It's possible that we would be thinking of Zwingli as, as more important than Luther and Calvin now if he, had, if he hadn't died so young. And so Zwingli died in battles between Swiss cantons who were fighting over Protestantism and Catholicism. So I guess you can say battle cry. So the battle cry of the Reformation was were these five solas. One, sola scriptura, which means that we should derive our teachings and our theology and our dictates, the things Christians must do or must not do, should come from scripture alone not from other stuff, not from the writings of the Pope, not from the writings of the Church Fathers. And then sola fide, that we are saved by faith alone. So it's the only thing we add to the equation of salvation is that we have faith in Christ, who died for our sins. And then sola gratia, or sola gratia, I don't speak Latin, so I'm not entirely sure which one's a better pronunciation, but sola gratia, by grace alone. So we are saved not because we have earned salvation, that Christ owes us salvation from the blood that comes from his veins, but that it is by the grace of God. It's an unearned gift from God. And then solo Christo, by Christ alone or from Christ alone, that salvation comes from Christ alone and not from anything else, not from the church, not from church councils, not from the pope, and once again, not from the good works we do, although that's already been addressed with sola fide. And then finally, soli deo gloria, for the glory of God alone. And basically, it's all of this is for God's glory. It's not so that I can be exalted, but so that God can be exalted. And those five solas, sola scriptura, sola fide, sola gratia, solo Cristo, and soli deo gloria was the battle cry of the Protestant Reformation. And i got to speak as a Protestant Christian here. I like all that. I like all that. But the downside of that is it leads us to ignore 1,500 years of Christian history. And to imagine that Christian history just kind of hits the pause button when John gets done writing his works and then picks up again when Martin Luther starts nailing 95 theses to the Wittenberg chapel door, is, it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous to ignore, ignore that much history. So we don't have anything 
written during that period of time? Is that what you're saying? Oh, absolutely. There's all kinds of stuff written during okay, that time. But we don't. That's what we're study actually. It. Yeah, that's what we're actually studying today. Is some of the writings during that time. What I'm saying is, Protestants often willfully, if not unintentionally, ignore all that. We just tend to think uh, scripture. In fact, honestly. Protestants today don't even really give a whole lot of attention to the Reformers, for that matter. We remember Luther and Calvin, and most people don't even know who Zwingli was. You might know something about the English Reformation and whatever denomination you belong to, Baptist, Methodist, you kind of know a little bit about its history. But other than that, it's really kind of New Testament, and then uh, uh, some stuff happened, and then I was born and joined a church. And that's, that's kind of Protestant history right there. And we're wrong about that. We need, to, we need to be more willing to learn from church history, from its good stuff and its bad stuff. So, for instance, nothing fits that paradigm better than understanding the Crusades, why we fought them, where we were wrong, and maybe a few places where we were right, or where the, where the church maybe had a point. Mostly bad. The Crusades were not necessarily the... They were not... Uh, uh, a good look on the church, let's put it that way. The militarization of the church was not was not good. So the five solas created a purifying effort to strip away late medieval theology and church polity that had become stagnant and dangerous. In some cases, dangerous. Like, for instance, the selling of indulgences. So Johann Tetzel, among others, were Catholic priests who would go around the countryside and in cities, and they would sell indulgences to people. So you would buy an indulgence, and the indulgence would free you from some of your sins so you wouldn't have to go to purgatory, or you wouldn't go to purgatory quite as long. For that matter, the teaching of purgatory itself, that there is a in-between halfway house between uh, here and heaven that you go to to purge yourself of sins. The New Testament teaches that your sins are purged by the blood of Christ, and it is for men once to die, and then comes judgment. Uh, so the teaching of purgatory, the selling of indulgences, and also the indulgences could also be, it, may, it might not be that I'm trying to save myself from purgatory, but maybe I want my gram, grandpa. So I'll buy indulgences on his behalf. So I'll give some money to the church, and the church would use that uh, to build, say, St. Saint, Saint Peter's Basilica in the Vatican. They would come to me for more money to get my mother there. And yeah, it was a, it was a medieval version of selling chocolate candies for the 4-H club. Is that one of the things that hammered the thing on the door? Yeah. Is that, is that one More the, than one of the 95 theses were directly addressed the selling of indulgences. Martin Luther did not think much of Johann Tetzel or any of the people that sold indulgences. He didn't think of, much about that practice at all. In fact, the selling of indulgences is still technically a Catholic well, process. I'm going to say in my lifetime, uh, we lived in a, a neighborhood about split half and half Catholic and Protestant and, and uh, that was still a strong belief you know, not too many years ago and I don't know why they still do that or not it's my understanding I could be totally wrong about this that it is still something that, that can be done but it's not really something that's pushed since Vatican II Roman Catholic religious expression has been actually more Protestant that, that sounds weird to say but it's more your own personal relationship with Christ and your own personal relationship with the church and with God. And religion is more of a personal thing. The kind of the nuts and bolts aspects are less emphasized than they used to be. 
But the nuts and bolts aspects have not gone away. The church still teaches that when the Pope declares something ex cathedra from the Holy Seat, that it is infallible. He cannot make a mistake if he pronounces something ex cathedra. Even though multiple examples of popes declaring things ex cathedra contradict each other. The perpetual virginity of Mary, the immaculate conception of Mary, the selling of indulgences, all this stuff that may or may not be a, a black eye to the church, whether they, a certain Catholic might not see it as any of that as bad, and another Catholic might be like a little cringy about it, but it's all still part of the Catholic theology and, and what's the word, dogma. It's still part of Catholic dogma. Now, this is where I need to be honest. As a Protestant, and what I've just said about we don't really focus on this stuff, I am no expert on the early church fathers. Even in seminary, we barely touched on the early church fathers. In seminary, we had the classes on church history, but even my two classes, actually three classes on church history, one was Baptist history, and then history of Christianity 1 and 2. Only in history of Christianity 1 did we even talk about the early church fathers. And like tonight, we just talked about them. We didn't necessarily study their writings. We're not going to study their writings tonight because honestly, I, I'm just, I don't feel that I can do that in good faith. Like, I don't think I have enough expertise to talk about them. In fact, the only writing of the early church fathers that I know that I've read in full is the Didache, which is about the size of Ephesians. So it's not very long. And I know I've read parts of other church fathers' writings. I've read some Justin Martyr, and I've read some uh, some stuff from Clement, and I've read a lot of stuff from Augustine, but I don't know if I've read anything in full from those figures. Not like the New Testament, which I've read each book of the New Testament at least ten times by now. And I'll read them all again. If I follow my plan, I'll read the New Testament once a year, every year, and then during election years, I'll read it three times. My, my current plan, Bible reading plan is I read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation every year, and then on leap years, that's a better way of saying than election years, on leap years, I read the New Testament three times. And so I read the New Testament, what's that, six times every four years? And as far as I know, I'm, I'm going to keep, keep that habit until I die. So I will end up reading the New Testament, goodness, maybe a hundred times before it's all said and done. And up to this point in my life, like I said, the only writings of the Church Fathers I know I've read in full is the Didache. So with that caveat aside and me admitting my weakness on this knowledge, let's spend the rest of the time talking about some of the early church fathers. Like I said, I won't be talking much about their writings, but I will say this, that every one of these people that I'm about to mention, there are writings available. And most of this stuff is available on the internet. I mean, it's not like John Chrysostom's descendants are holding copyright for the last 1700 years. Most of this stuff, if not all of this stuff, is available online. So if you're really interested, you can go read First Clement right now. Just go to a Google and write one Clement text. And then you'll be sent to a, probably a Catholic website. And then you'll see an English translation of First Clement if you really want to do that. Or the Didache or any of these other writings. You can read the writings of Polycarp or uh, Augustine. You can read all this stuff online. It's available. So... Let's spend the rest of our time talking about a brief selection of some of the church fathers. I'm not going to talk about them all. There are well over 100 people that are considered church fathers. 
The first one is a person by the name of Anonymous. In other words, we don't know who wrote the Didache. It was written sometime between 100 and 300, and I kind of tend towards the early end of that, that somewhere around 100, I think it was very early, early enough that early church figures believed that it was actually from the Twelve Apostles. And so that would put it more around 100, 120, somewhere in that range. Although some scholars put it as late as 300. What was the Didache? Well, it was a short theology manual of the early church that itself reports to be from the Twelve Apostles, from the Twelve Disciples of Christ. Let's move beyond that. The next group we're going to talk about would be the Anti-Nicene Fathers. Not the Anti-Nicene Fathers. They're not people who oppose Nicaea. They're Anta, A-N-T-E, Anti-Nicene Fathers. What this means is that these were the people who did their ministry and their writing before the Council of Nicaea. The Council of Nicaea and the entire political reign of Constantine really changes everything. The Roman Catholic Church, by their accounting, their church dates all the way back to the point where Jesus changes Simon's name to Peter and gives him the keys to the kingdom of heaven. That's where the Roman Catholic Church begins. And I don't want to fight with Catholics. I like Catholics. I don't necessarily agree, though. I think the best place to start the Roman Catholic Church would be when Constantine calls the Council of Nicaea. Because from that point on, the church and the state, the Roman state, are then connected. And in some form or another, the Roman church has been that way ever since. And so the Roman Catholic Church has outlasted both halves of the Roman Empire. The Western Roman Empire, which fell apart in 405-ish, and the Eastern Roman Empire, which lasted until the 1450s. Today, the Roman Catholic Church still has a connection officially to Vatican City, the smallest country on earth. But unofficially, the Roman Catholic Church still has a deep political connection with all of Latin America, as well as a kind of historic cultural connection with half of Europe. They've got uh, connections with, about, I'd say, about a third, maybe a fourth of the African countries where Catholicism is still strong, as well as the Philippines and the United States and Canada, where the Catholic Church is, is still strong in those, those areas as well. Although, in the United States and Canada, I don't really think the Roman Catholic Church has any real political affiliation, but certainly a cultural affiliation. And so, I personally would date the beginning of the Roman Catholic Church to Constantine and the calling of the Council of Nicaea. And from that point on, there's a, the church has a political component. Before Nicaea, there really is no political component to the church. It's really kind of a natural separation of church and state especially during those Roman emperors who are still pagan and then decide to persecute the church, like Nero in the first century or later, like Vespasian or some other Roman emperors. So here are some of, some of the anti-Nicene fathers. You've got Clement of Rome. We've talked about him, I think, last week. He's actually mentioned once in Scripture in, was it Colossians? I think Colossians or Second Timothy, he's mentioned in one of the letters of Paul. Just offhand, like, uh, oh, hi, say hi to Clement, kind of thing. Or Clement says hi, one or the other. Clement is listed as the fourth pope on Roman Catholic accountings, and his book, 
First Clement, and by calling it First Clement, I assume there's other letters, but the famous one is First Clement, uh, which is known in the text as the Epistle to the Romans from Clement. Is that in the Catholic Bible? No, it's not in the Catholic Bible, but the Catholics do use it. Or it's honored, I guess is a way, but no, the Catholics do not have a New Testament Apocrypha. They do not have a, an officially recognized New Testament collection of, of writings. Their New Testament and the Protestant New Testament are identical. With maybe some translation differences. But there's translation differences between the NIV and then the NIV that was made in 84. So there's always going to be a few translation differences. Then you have figures like Ignatius and Polycarp who were disciples of John. So their connection to Christ is, you know, the whole six degrees of Kevin Bacon, one degree. There's one degree between Jesus and Polycarp and Ignatius, and that is John. That's it. So they were, they had an extraordinary connection. So once John's gone, they, they as well as Clement were kind of the big men on campus. Then you have people like Papias of Hierapolis and Irenaeus, who were disciples of Polycarp. And then in the case of Papias, he was known, one of his sobriquets was that he was known as a hearer of John, which to me seems to imply that he was around early enough to have, have actually met John, even though maybe Papias was so young and John was right on death's door, so they, they, he, you really can't call him disciple. But that, that's extraordinary as well. And then you have Justin Martyr, who I've heard this before that that's where we get the name Martyr from Justin. That makes it seem like Justin's last name was Martyr. No, the name Martyr was attached to Justin. His name was Justin. Justin of whatever town he was from. Martyr has been attached to his name. In the same way, later we'll talk about a guy by the name of John Chrysostom, which means John the Golden-Tongued. John's last name was not Chrysostom. It was that was, just, that was a kind of a nickname, or, or it's the same way Alexander the Great. It's not like the Great was his last name. So Justin Martyr was a martyr. Records apparently still exist. I've never seen these records. But apparently records still exist, historical records, documenting his beheading by Roman authorities after he had a debate with a cynic by the name of Crescens. That debate illustrates Justin Martyr's early ministry. He was more of a philosopher than he was a theologian, and he was an apologist. He defended the faith in a Greek philosophical realm. So these Antonicene fathers, all of them, the ones I mentioned and the ones that I did not mention, they have certain things in common. They were pre-state church, so they existed in a time before the political connection between the church and state. They were pre-canon. Or a better way of understanding it is they were around while the church was still mulling over which books belong in the New Testament and in what order. And so these men were probably part of that discussion. It is likely that Clement might have even been instrumental in making sure people didn't add his books to the New Testament. Probably making the point that I'm not an apostle. Add Paul's stuff. Add John's stuff. Add Peter's stuff. Please read my stuff, but don't stick it with the New Testament. It's likely that that was part of what Clement was doing. These were the generations that developed Trinitarian orthodoxy. 
And so some of these writings don't seem to actually be Trinitarian. And so if, say, it, Polycarp had existed 500 years later, and you read his stuff, you would say, oh, that guy doesn't believe in the Trinity. But that's not fair, because Polycarp was writing at a time when we didn't even have the word Trinity. So he was still part of that generation that was trying to hammer out just exactly what Christians believe about God and about Christ and about the Holy Spirit. These fathers, the Anti-Nicene Fathers, are considered church fathers by the Roman Catholic Church, but also by the Eastern Orthodox Churches. And all of these fathers are unique, but without splitting hairs, there's really no way of differentiating their teachings. They were Orthodox so that their teachings, for the most part, line up. There's about as much difference between, say, Polycarp and Ignatius as there is between Peter and Paul, if that makes sense. So you could split hairs and find some differences, but their, their teachings still line up very well. In the case of Origen and Tertullian, that's actually cases where you see some more deviation. But because they deviated from the set group of people like Clement and Ignatius and Polycarp and Papias, they're not sainted and they're not considered church fathers. And that's unfortunate because Tertullian is the one that ended up giving us the term Trinitas, Trinity. Tertullian was an extraordinary mind. He was a, a polymath, brilliant, wonderful church father. One of the reasons I like Tertullian so much is because he's one of the church fathers that we can be pretty certain that he was a dark-skinned African. When so much of church history is done by pasty white people. And so it's unfortunate that Tertullian then gets set outside, slightly outside of orthodoxy. Most Orthodox Christians would still honor Tertullian, but would disagree with him about Montanists and like whether widows can get remarried. They can. They totally can. After the Antonicene Fathers, you have the Nicene Fathers. These were the people in church history who were around slightly before and slightly after and during the time of the Council of Nicaea. So, we've already talked about it, but what is the Council of Nicaea? Well, Constantine was an emperor of Rome. And Constantine's mother was Christian. And it seems like before one of his battles by a bridge, I don't remember the bridge, but before one of the battles, he, according to legend, actually I think it's according to his own testimony, but whether it actually happened this way or not is iffy, that before one of the battles he he prayed to his mother's God, and said, if, if, you are, if you are real, show me a sign. And he saw a sign of the cross in heaven. And so he decided to put the sign of the cross on his armor. And he went into battle and won a glorious, amazing victory. And so he went on, once he, once he became the overall emperor, he decided to change Roman policy where the church was legalized. And steps were started to be made to make the church the official religion of Rome, as evidenced by the fact that Julian the Apostate came after Constantine, that the actual connection between the church and Rome actually comes after Constantine. Because after Constantine, you have Julian, and Julian once again tries to return Rome to its pagan roots. He doesn't succeed. So after Julian, until the end of the empire, it's ruled by Christian emperors. And part of Constantine's plan 
was to call the Council of Nicaea. By calling the Council, he hopes to settle some debates, like when we should date Easter. Was You would think that was a minor debate. Apparently, it was the big one at the time. There was just a lot of debate about when we should have the Easter celebration. So it would be a chance to settle some debates, but it was also a chance for him to assert his authority as the political emperor over the church, which was not something, if you think back to the writers of the New Testament and the generations immediately after, that's not how they thought. At most, they taught and thought about submission to the emperor, but not in terms of the state having authority over the church, but rather the kind of a Baptist idea of the church and state being separate realms that coexist, but they don't have control over each other. And by, by the way, when I say Baptist idea, I really mean an early Baptist idea. Kind of contemporary Baptists, some of them, not even a majority, but some of them, I think are Christian nationalists who would like to see the church become part of the government, which is sad. I think that one of the best things Baptists ever did for America was bring in concepts of separation of church and state. It's one of the best things the Baptists ever did. Uh, and also religious freedom. Roger Williams, an early Baptist in Rhode Island, he went so far as to say that anybody, Jews, Muslims, atheists, everybody should have the freedom of, of religion. And for that, he was seen as the most radical person in America because in some ways he was. Nobody else was saying that. You would have these churches that would have control over certain areas. So the Maryland started as a Catholic colony. Eventually it became kind of anti-Catholic. But uh, So the Catholics originally were, were sent to Maryland so that they could have their area and, and the king could just get the Catholics out of his hair. And William Penn and the Quakers set up in Pennsylvania and the Congregationalists set up in Massachusetts and the Anglicans set up in Virginia and a few other southern uh, states. And and when, when they set up their control over those states, then they behaved just like the Anglican Church did in England, where they started to outlaw the other groups, which Roger Williams said, no, let's do something different. So in Rhode Island, separation of church and state, none of your tax dollars went to any church. Not your church, not anybody else's church, and the government didn't have any say over how the churches behaved. The church had no say over how the government behaved. And everybody had the freedom to be religious or not religious and to be, join any religious organization they wanted to. I'm going to be honest with you. That's one of the best things America's ever done. Because I don't want to live in, even if I could somehow envision a world in which the entire country was ruled by my denomination. I know enough about my denomination that I don't want that. I don't want Southern Baptists to have any political control over this country or any state in this country. And I love Southern Baptists. And I love the United Methodists, my old church. I have fond ties to, to both groups. And the American Baptists. I was an American Baptist for a few years when I was in college. I still like that, that group as well. I don't want any of them to have political power. So that was an amazing bunny trail. Let's find our way back. So the Nicene Fathers were part of that generation that the Council of Nicaea when the Council of Nicaea happened. Here are some names. You have Ambrose of Milan. You have Basil the Great. Gregory of Nyssa. I guess if you want to take notes, N-Y-S-S-A. Apparently that's a city. I think that was a city in Turkey. Then you have John Chrysostom, considered in church history to be the greatest preacher to ever live. 
That's why he's known as that. Chrysostom means golden-tongued. And then the best of the Nicene fathers was Athanasius. Now, if I understand the history correctly, Athanasius was not a major player at the Council of Nicaea. In fact, it doesn't seem like he was there for most of the meeting. He was there for part of the latter part of the council. But coming out of the council, as Nicene Orthodoxy was determined and Arianism was declared a heresy, Athanasius kind of was the chief champion of Orthodoxy. And he, unfortunately, had to sit around and watch as Arianism continued to grow. And at a certain point, Athanasius acquired a nickname, Athanasius Contra Mundum, which means Athanasius against the world, because sometimes it felt that way. It is not inconceivable that if there was no Athanasius, then all Christians would be Arians today. Because Arianism, for a brief window of time, was so strong culturally that it could have become the orthodoxy. And Athanasius was probably, and I'm speaking here from, as a Christian, I've got to believe the Holy Spirit was the, was the one that guided history in this effect. But as a, from a secular thought perspective, it is possible to say that Athanasius was, if not the man, then he was the key man in keeping traditional orthodoxy as orthodoxy. Then after the Council of Nicaea, then you have the post-Nicene fathers. These were the church fathers that came after the Council of Nicaea. And so the big name here is Augustine. Augustine was from North Africa, from the city of Hippo. He was... Actually, like Constantine before him, his mother was a Christian, but he was not. He was he was a pagan. And his conversion to Christianity was kind of a, a hiccuping process. But at a certain point in the city of Milan, and if I'm not mistaken, Ambrose, we mentioned Ambrose was one of the Nicene fathers, was part of his conversion experience. I might be wrong about that. If you're interested, look it up. The Augustine section of Wikipedia is very long. I mean, it would take almost an hour to read the whole thing. He is one of the most significant people in history. Top 100, easily. Uh, of the most significant people to ever exist. After he became a Christian, he became an extremely prolific writer, an extraordinary philosopher, a wonderful theologian, a bishop of the church. He also was around during the time when the Goths, the Gothic groups, the Germans, and actually, I'm, I'm not entirely sure if, because it seems like that you have Ostrogoths and Visigoths. So you had some of the Goths were from kind of the Spain area, some of them in the Germany area, and then some of the Goths were in North Africa, and they were known as the Vandals, which is where we get the term Vandal today. The idea being the Vandals were so fearsome that they would destroy everything. So it was vandalism. Vandal. And if I'm not mistaken, the Vandals were a Gothic group as well. And so you have these Gothic groups almost surrounding Roman civilization. So you have them in the forests of Germany, you have them in kind of Spain, northern France area, and North Africa. 
and they kind of surround Rome. And then as Rome becomes a complacent society, Roman government begins using Goths more and more in its own military. And so you have even generals who, were, who would be Gothic. And then when you come on hard times and the government can't quite pay the soldiers as much as they, they think they deserve, then the Roman armies of Goths would just sack Roman cities and take stuff. And eventually, even Rome got sacked more than one time to the point where it just disintegrated the Western Roman Empire. And it was during this time that Augustine wrote his magnum opus, The City of God. There were some people in Roman society who believed that the deconstruction of Roman society could be the fault of Christians. When the pagans were in charge, we were strong. And when the Christians took over, that was the beginning of the end. And they, they might have a point, historically. I think it's more likely that they were two events that happened side by side. No society lasts forever. I hate to say this, but the United States of America is not going to exist for the next 5,000 years. At some point, something new will come along. No society lasts forever. Rome was already going on a thousand years. It wasn't going to last. It wasn't going to last forever. The coming of Christianity into the empire, if anything, might have strengthened it for a while. It gave a more unified Christian, or it gave a more unified religious expression for Roman society. But certain people looked at, at Roman history and said, the Christians come along and everything starts to go to heck. And Augustine writes the city of God as kind of a rebuttal of that idea. He defends the idea that Christianity has been and will continue to be a good thing for Rome and Roman society. Other post-Nicene fathers were Gregory the Great, probably the best pope that ever lived. I mean, unless you count Peter. I mean, the Catholics count Peter in the list. and So, yeah, Peter is great. But from the point where I believe the, you could say the church starts, I think Gregory was, is probably the greatest pope that the church has. You have Jerome, who was actually kind of a antisocial kind of person. I don't know. I've heard this taught in class. I haven't actually looked it up myself, but he was kind of a cranky fellow. But he was an extraordinary scholar. And Jerome was responsible for the Vulgate, which was the Latin translation of the Bible. The King James version of the Bible has enjoyed almost 400 years of primacy in the English language from 1611 till the mid-1900s and when modern translations started to become more popular. The Vulgate was popular for a thousand years and is still used in some circles as the Latin translation of the Bible. You also have John of Damascus and as best I can tell he is the last of the great fathers that is recognized by both the East and the West. Because what happens in the year 1060, that same decade, two important things happen. In 1060, the East and West Church split, and then six years later, in 1066, the French successfully invade England. William of Normandy invades England. It's the last time England has been successfully invaded. And then for several generations, England's government was actually French-speaking government a French-speaking government over English-speaking people. And after 1066, the, the English language before 1066, to our ear, sounds more German because it didn't have that French influence. And then after 1066, you start seeing the coming of Middle English, 
which then with the King James Bible and William Shakespeare starts to transition into modern English. So around 1060, the growing tension between the East and the West comes to a head. There had been tensions between the East and the West because in the West, the Pope had become the unquestioned leader of the church. And so all the bishops in France, England, Germany, most of Germany, Spain, Portugal, North Africa, Italy, they all answered to the Pope. That, that The Pope was the chief bishop amongst bishops. The, what, the Eastern Church never recognized the Pope that way. They saw the Pope as the Bishop of Rome, end of sentence. And so the Patriarch or the Bishop of Istanbul or the, what were some other cities? Uh, Jerusalem, Antioch, and then later Kiev and St. Petersburg. And Moscow actually doesn't, Moscow is only 800 years old. It's not as, it's a much more modern city by European standards. Bucharest, those bishops, the bishops over those major cities would see the Pope as a perfectly legitimate bishop of Rome, an equal amongst the other bishops. And also, furthermore, in the West, the Latin language starts to become primary, the primacy of the Latin language. And then in the East, Greek remains the prime language, the, the Greek of the New Testament, and then obviously languages evolve over time. And so the Greek of that day. And then eventually Russian, Ukrainian, Romanian, the other Eastern languages as well. So there's a lot of tension there, and that doesn't cover half of it. But there was a lot of tension there, and it came to a boil in 1060 when the Pope sent his emissary to modern-day Istanbul, I guess Constantinople or Byzantium would be the term of the city at the time. He goes to Istanbul and demands that the Eastern Church bow the knee to the Pope, and they said no, to to heck with you, and there was a split. And from that point on, the Eastern Churches separated from the Western Church. The Eastern Churches, there still is a, a loose, actually not as loose as you'd think, but a loose confederation between churches uh, over Russia, Ukraine, Belarus, Poland, Turkey, Greece, those those areas. And then a much looser connection with like the Coptic church in Ethiopia and Egypt and, and other eastern churches as well. And then the western church from 1060 until Martin Luther is a monolithic group. I mean, there, there would be splinter groups along the way, like the Waldensians, for instance. But it would be a monolithic group until the Protestant Reformation then splintered the Western Church beyond all possible recognition. There are thousands of Western Churches now, thanks to the Protestant Reformation. So, let's close with this. Of all the names we've mentioned, here are the Great Fathers. The, among the Western Church, the Great Fathers are considered these four. Gregory the Great, who I said was probably the greatest of the popes, with the exception of Peter. Ambrose, Augustine, and Jerome. Those are considered the Great Fathers in the West. In the East, they have a different list of four. They have John Chrysostom, the golden-tongued. They have Basil the Great. Gregory of Nanzianzus, N-A-N-Z, 
I-A-N-Z-U-S. And then Athanasius. Athanasius would be listed amongst the great fathers of the East. All of those names would be honored by the West as well. But the Western churches consider the four great fathers, and then the Eastern list uh, churches have a, a different list. And finally, the Roman Catholics have a title called Doctor of the Church. We're all familiar with Roman Catholics using a process of sainthood. And I don't think, if you could go look it up online how many official saints there are, I'm not sure that Catholics even know how many saints there are. Because you, you go searching in the records and certainly somebody's going to find somebody who had been sainted that they had forgotten about. But there are thousands, thousands of people who have been sainted by the Roman Catholic Church. But there have only been 37 people, three or four of them women even, 37 people have the title Doctor of the Church. It is a higher honor than saint. Each of the names we just mentioned are in that list of doctors of the church. All eight of those people are considered doctors by the, by the Roman Catholic Church. But here are some other names to throw in there. John of Damascus, we mentioned him. But then a couple of names that are really kind of after the church father era. First of all, you have Anselm of Canterbury, who was a Roman theologian who did most of his work in Canterbury in England. This was before, it was hundreds of years before Henry VIII separated the Church of England from the Roman Catholic Church. So for hundreds and hundreds of years, England was a Catholic country, as were all Western countries, all Western European countries. Uh, Anselm was one of them, and Anselm was one of the most brilliant minds that have ever existed. He dealt with apologetic philosophy. And he liked arguments for the existence of God, but he wanted to find one argument to kind of rule them all. And he came up with something called the ontological argument. And I'm going to take a swing at trying to explain the ontological argument, and I will probably fail. Now, this formulation of the ontological argument is really developed by modern theologians like William Lane Craig and, and some others, but Anselm's work is, is heavy in, in this understanding. So the ontological argument, if you understand everything in the world that we know as trillions of events and truth, true things that can be said about this world. So my name is Will Wrights, and I ate uh, fried chicken for dinner, and the Chiefs lost on Sunday, that's unfortunate, and uh, Jesus is the Son of God, London is the capital of England, and, and all that. All of those truth claims and all of the events describe a possible world. So when we say possible worlds, we're not talking about other dimensions, and we're not talking about other planets. We're talking about a maximal way of describing reality. But let's say that I actually ate ribs for dinner. But everything else is the same. All of human history has exactly the same except I had ribs for dinner. That would be another possible world. It would be the, the exact same thing except ribs would be dinner. Or a, a world where... The Chiefs won. Yeah, a world where the Chiefs won on Sunday. Or a world where Manchester is the capital of England instead of London. All of these, each truth, each thing that can be switched as a truth claim can dictate another possible world. And there are certain things like 
there are unmarried bachelors or one-ended sticks. Those can't be true. So those don't represent a, tr- a possible world. Have I lost you yet? So imagine a world where uh, instead of the person you married, you actually married somebody else. But everything else about the world is the same. And we've all done this. What if I, what if I put uh, every dollar I had on the Chiefs winning the Super Bowl in the 2019 season? Well, I would have like $100,000 now. That'd be wonderful. And then I could start thinking, or what if I had bought a Powerball ticket? You know, I could go back in time now. Or if I could go back to 1997 and put $1,000 in Amazon stock, what would I do with my $200 million now? We can all, we all play this game, the old what-if game. So we, we all can think of possible worlds. What would happen in a world where everything is exactly the same except I had $200 million? Well, here's what I'd buy and here's what I wouldn't buy. We all play this game whether we realize it or not. So in, in any possible world, if it's possible that God exists, then you say, okay, here's a world, here's a possible world where God exists. But what is God? This is the ontological part. Ontology means the study of existence. So what is God? Well, then you start thinking of, of God. Well, what, what makes God God and not something else? Well, he's all-powerful. He's all-wise. He is all-knowing. He is all-good. These are great-making properties. In other words, there are, there are ways of describing someone that there is a maximal goodness to. So you can say, for instance, and you'll hear these kind of rid- ridiculousness, well, what about uh, a greatest possible pizza? Well, there is no greatest possible pizza because I can always add one more pepperoni. There's no great-making properties to a pizza. You can't have an all-knowing pizza. You can't have an all-good pizza. In fact, I could keep adding pepperonis until eventually it starts becoming a worse pizza because now it's just covered in pepperoni. So it's not possible to have a greatest possible pizza, but it is possible to have a greatest possible person. That person would be all-knowing, all-good, all-wise, all-powerful, and that, by definition, is God. But one of the great-making properties is existence. It's better to exist than not to exist. And the greatest existence is that you would exist in every possible world. So in the world where the Chiefs won Sunday, in the, Chief, in the world where Manchester was, uh, is the capital of England, in the world where I have $200 million, God can exist in every one of those worlds. And therefore, if it's possible that God exists in any possible world, then he exists in every possible world. Because that is the greatest description of God is that he exists in every possible world. Have I lost you? Do I think this is a really good argument for God's existence? No, not really. I think it is a fascinating argument. I think it's a logically sound argument. I just think there's much better arguments for the existence of God. Anyway, Anselm came up with that, the ontological argument. Brilliant man. Super brilliant man. And then, of course, Thomas Aquinas who is probably the most significant theologian who didn't write scripture, with maybe the exception of John Calvin. If you're a Protestant, you would throw John Calvin as the greatest Christian theologian who didn't write scripture. And if you're Catholic, the answer is Thomas Aquinas. Now, you notice we didn't talk much about the text of these. But the reason I brought up all this is not to talk about church history, but to point out that every one of these names we talked about tonight, with maybe one or two exceptions... I'm not sure, but I think every one of these people wrote stuff. They wrote stuff to each other. They wrote stuff to 
churches. They wrote sermons to give to their own church. They wrote books like Augustine wrote books like The City of God. All of this stuff can be read. It all has value, not only historically, but theologically. Without Augustine, I don't think there ever is a Martin Luther or a John Calvin. I mean, not the humans. They would exist. But would they be as important as they are? No. Without Augustine's teachings, I don't think there's a Protestant Reformation. Without his teachings about the grace of God and the all-supremacy of God and his will, I don't think there's a Protestant Reformation. So, these writings are important. But, from the earliest days, including the days of Clement, where I think Clement himself argued for First Clement not to be considered scripture, from the earliest days, there was seen as a separation. So these books are superior for the podcast, I'm holding a Bible. These books are superior to all of these writings without question. And so there is a, a clear hierarchy. Sola Scriptura. We build our theology, we build our churches, and we build our personal ethics and morality. What we must do and what we must not do. We build that stuff from Scripture alone. No matter what John Chrysostom said about an issue. If John Chrysostom's writing happens to amplify and explain Scripture, wonderful. But this is still superior. And then next week, we will take another step down the rabbit hole as we discuss the Gnostic writings. And the Gnostic writings do not hold the same position as the early church fathers. The church fathers' writings, for the most part, are good. The Gnostic writings, for the most part, can be used to light a fire when you're cold at night. They're they're useless. We hope you have enjoyed this production of The Blue Collar Scholar. I am your host, Will Wrights. Any factual errors made in the preparation or recording of this podcast are unintentional, and your feedback is welcome. You may contact me at thewillwrights at gmail.com. That's T-H-E-W-I-L-L-R-E-I-T-Z at gmail.com. The Blue Collar Scholar is written, recorded, and edited by Will Wrights. The purpose of this podcast is to educate. Use and distribution of this podcast can only be done by the express written permission of the content creator of this podcast. We hope you have enjoyed this episode, and we hope you will be back to download more. And thank you.